You're a musician, aren't you, Dave? Yes, I am. What instrument do you play? Drums. Well, uh, we'll count that. Wouldn't you love a show on WPSC Brave New Radio at 8 p.m. on Wednesdays that would answer all your questions about how the music business works? Sort of like a Music Biz 101. Exactly. Wait, isn't there a show on at that time called Music Biz 101 and More that brings faculty and students from WP's music and entertainment management programs together with industry guests that take call-in questions and tweets from listeners about the biz? Yep. It's had all last spring, and it's starting up again every Wednesday at 8 p.m. right here on 88.7 WPSC. Yes! There were great guests like Steve Lees from Sirius Radio and Aaron Van Dyne, who handles business affairs for KISS, Three Doors Down, Dave Matthews Band, and more. Also, Carl Guthrie, legendary entertainment attorney, and Paul Sinclair, VP of Digital for Atlantic Records. So, Steve, who's signed up for this semester? We have Dave Laurie, who will talk about tour management, Sean Rosenberg, a social media guru, and Sean and Rachel from Blue Raven Entertainment, just to name a few. Wow, sounds great. And it's free. That's right. Free advice every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. live at Music Biz 101 and more on WPSC 88.7 Brave New Radio. I was listening to the radio. It was Music Biz 101 and more. Warren, Zevon, he interrupted me. That is ridiculous. Here I am trying to sing a song for our fine listeners, and Warren Zevon comes in and destroys the entire tune. Hello, this is Music Biz 101 and more. You're listening to the greatest radio show in the history of mankind. It's on WP 88.7 Brave New Radio, the home of Braveology. Philip, Philip. Who is our producer? How are you, Philip Gorchowski? I'm, I'm doing really well. Thanks for asking. I'm looking at the... There's a sign in the studio that says, The Home of Braveology. Do you guys ever say that? Do you use the Braveology term very much? Or that's... It's... Oh. No, I mean, we do use Braveology. I mean, that's um, that's the core of our content. Is yes. um, That's sort of like the... Um, Aside of the morning shows and the evening shows, everything in between is uh, Braveology. So the afternoon, basically. Yeah, the afternoon jocks. Yeah, the DJs yeah. come in, play good music, and... Uh, and uh, they're on air. That, okay. That's that's what Brave New so is all about. So morning and afternoon, morning and night, no Braveology. Afternoon Braveology. Well, the specialty shows are on in the evenings, and then you got the right. morning shows. Everything in between is Braveology. Oh, so afternoons. Yeah. So <laughs> as, come on. Are you? Try, what are you trying I'm, to I'm do? I'm trying here? to hurt you with words. So <laughs> this is Music Biz 101 and more. I am uh, one of your hosts, Dave Philp. You may call me Professor David Kirk Philp if you like. Our normal co-host, Dr. Stephen Marconi, is on assignment today. He's speaking somewhere, so he is unavailable to be here. So this week. You you just got me, and you have our wonderful producer, Philip Gorkowski! Thank you, thank you, thank you. There we go. We also have our in- incredibly awesome student co-host. His name is Sam Lowry. Sam Lowry! Hello, I'm Sam. Nice to meet you. Sam I am. It's good to have you, Sam I am. And then also, we have our esteemed guest for the night. His name is Ronald Beanstock, managing partner Beanstock and Michael comma pc so it is good to have you ronald beanstock entertainment attorney thank you for inviting me to the home of all that is brave <laughs> all that is brave we are including music miss <laughs> this is a very bold show right. and it is the only free advice college radio music and entertainment biz talk show and podcast in all of the americas and if you'd like you may tweet us questions now actually you'll be tweeting questions for ronald beanstock who is out do i say beanstock is that it or beanstock no, it's beanstock it, it really is beanstock is. b-i-e-n b-i-e-n B-I-E-N. And uh, you may tweet questions. You have questions about the entertainment law at MusicBiz101WP. Hit us up on the web every day of the week. MusicBiz101WP.com. 
This will be a podcast. Many of you will be listening to this on Stitcher.com or on our website. We're also there on Facebook and Instagram. We'll be also taking phone calls and text messages tonight, if you'd like, 973-720-2738. Again, without my stutter, it's 973-720-2738. Philip, how do we sound so far? How does the show sound so far? Because you're a very professional producer and you do your iHeartRadio thing every day. So how is this? iHeartMedia, sorry. iHeartMedia. iHeartMedia. Yeah. How's this so far? The show's going so far? That's all right. Not bad. Not okay. bad. It's different without Marconi. We're six minutes in. Well, yeah. Well, that's why it's not um, up to par. <laughs> exactly. Not here. He did not make fun of my singing voice, which is which is a good thing because it's probably better than most. Uh, uh, Ron, my singing voice that you heard, your first thought was, I need to represent this guy and get him a deal because he's that good. I think I needed to get him out of the Warren Zevon cover business. That's yeah. what I thought right away. <laughs> That's right. So Warren Zevon is a man. So we'll tell you real quick, upcoming guests, and then we're going to move on to Sam, and then we're going to move on to Ron. So next week, our big guest, he's very big, he's 12 feet tall, Grammy award-winning music producer Rob Fusari is going to talk about his latest music project called Carrie Noki. Have you ever heard of Rob Fusari? Yes, I have. I've spoken to Rob. You've uh, Rob uh, went here to William Patterson, mm-hmm. the university. I was a classmate of Rob's, and he has written for Beyonce and for Will Smith and for Destiny's Child and a lot of others. He's done very well for himself. And he has this character called Carrie Noki. And Mar- Marconi and I actually went in the city and saw them perform uh, back in March. And it's almost like this Ziggy Stardust esque kind of thing, this sort of glam kind of EDM meets seventies Mark Bolin thing going on. And it's it's interesting and we don't know when he comes in next week if it's gonna be Rob or if it's gonna be he because he dresses as this guy Karinoki all the time. So is he gonna be Karinoki with painted nails and painted hair and, and or is he going to be hey I'm Rob it could just be look I'm in character right now so you never know who's going to show up in the studio <laughs> that is true we have the we have the lawyer and um, we should let you know that he is charging by the minute so we should get moving so after that that's a is that a hor- look he's look pointed at the watch that there you go. That. There we go. <laughs> um, after Rob, we have Paul Sinclair, who is our expert in residence here at William Patterson the University with our music business program this year. He is the head of digital for Atlantic Records. Did you meet Sam? Have you met Paul Sinclair yet? No. No. Okay. Because Paul is Paul is Paul's the man. So Demon. he knows a lot. Yeah, he's great. He's the head of a uh, of uh, digital and e commerce and marketing for Atlantic Records, and is. Really smart guy. Very good. After that, Al Cohen, who is the founder of ACM Records, and uh, he's also a, an educator as well. And then coming up soon, we have, uh, we're talking to uh, the v- vice president of CSAC, who's uh, probably going to be here, Linda. I, her last name escapes me at the moment, but it's good that I remember the first name. And then Philip's dad is going to be here the day before Thanksgiving. Jim, is it Neglia, or is you said the G is silent, is it Nelia? It's Nelia. Yeah. Nelia. G- there silent, we go. G silent. Mm-hmm. Uh, author of Onward and Upward. He's also the manager of the New Jersey Symphony. Personnel manager. Personnel mm-hmm. manager. Which is even tougher than just being the manager. Yeah. you got to deal with people. Anytime okay. you deal with people, it's, it's tough. I started reading his book mm-hmm. How is it? It's good. Yeah. It's, it's just that? It's just good? This it. is the greatest book I've ever read. That's what I want it to say. Is, it's got gunplay. <laughs> it's got love. It's it's loaded with everything that anybody would want. It's practically graphic novel with just words. Very cool. And then we'll talk a, bit, a little bit later about the big theme song contest we have. But, Philip, am I missing anything or are we good to go? Um, well, that's it. You mentioned the theme song contest. We'll um, talk about it later. <laughs> cool. All right. Let's, let's, get, let's get going Philippe! here. Right? Philippe! 
<laughs> thank you. Thank That's you, enough. Man. I'm a professor. I need to be mature. So Sam Lowry, who is here. One more time. One more time for Sam. Sam Lowry. So Sam, you are, where are you in the program, the music management program? I am a senior music management major and have a concentration in classical piano. Really? Yeah. Okay. Okay. And with the music management program, you need to be uh, pass an audition, and you need to be able to read music and play music and all that. So you're mm-hmm. piano. Well, yeah. I went through this program, and I graduated in 1990, and I was a percussion was my thing, my thing, just like Jim Nelia, Philip's dad, mm-hmm. also percussion. Also, th- yeah, that's the just like. Did, right, you did, don't get redundant. Why, why are you even giving me a mic anymore? Well, I, don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm a little upsetting me. right now. So, so Sam, so you're going to graduate in May. Yeah. Right. Okay. So are you nervous? Do you have uh, a good internship going on? What What are you Yeah, a little nervous. I mean, that's the real world awaits. But I'm talking with Marconi about the internship for next semester, the mm-hmm. honors internship, hopefully looking at razor and tie. So that should be pretty okay. cool. Good. Yeah. With Joanne Kelsey is trying to hook you up with. She's a grad from here who works in licensing at <laughs> razor and tie, for example. And uh, Oh, that's great. Okay. Yeah. That's good. What is the best thing that you've enjoyed about your almost four years, your three and a half years here? Probably the faculty. I really liked Dassinger and Guthrie's class. Is very, they're very like involved with the business, and mm-hmm. they have a lot of like opinions, and you learn a lot. It's very eye opening. Right. You get to see like or learn from people who are actually interacting with celebrities and people that you want to eventually like manage those types of people. So it's pretty cool hearing their stories. That's great. And the Dassinger is George Dassinger, who is the one who introduced me to our our illustrious guest today, Ron Beanstock, and then uh, Carl Guthrie, Carl with a K, who is our uh, on the adjunct faculty teaching entertainment law mm-hmm. and all things like that. So oh, that's cool. Okay. All right. So we are going to hear a lot more from Sam as the show goes on, because Sam is going to be reading many of your tweets. We've gotten teams of tweets so far, but we're going to begin with uh, Ron Bean. One more, one more hand for Ron Beanstock, who's here, entertainment lawyer extraordinaire. Ron, you are the managing partner of this firm based in Hackensack. What is what does that mean? We always hear the in the the firm of Beanstock, Beanstock and Beanstock. So what is managing partner? Well, if I knew the other two Beanstocks it would be very helpful, but <laughs> so far I think it's just I'm the Beanstock. It is <clears throat> when you're managing partner, you're the person who runs the firm. Um, you make the decisions based on your experience as to uh, actions that are taken involving all of your clients, things that are gonna get, that are going to get done, giving out assignments, making sure partners and associates are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And how generally the firm is looked upon and seen by everybody in the various businesses that you're involved in. Okay. And how, how long does it take you to get to that that point? It takes a long time. Um, <laughs> I started my practice. I was general counsel for uh, Tom and Ibanez. And I left uh, and started my own practice in my apartment. So I had my uh, – of course, no one's supposed to know these things. They're supposed mm-hmm. to always think that you walk straight into something. You know, there it is. It's, it's all set up for you. You know, fur, chaise lounges and, you know, things like that. Um, but I started in my apartment. I had my studio, my recording studio in my apartment and uh, in my studio apartment also. So all my clients initially. Then we moved down to 57th Street and started expanding. Okay. And one thing people don't know is you're, you're an accomplished musician. You know, you're, you're a bass player and I'm you've been in bands kid. for many years and you've done a lot of great things. Why don't you explain some of the stuff that you guys, you have done in your band and not great at, bands. I'm really not great at talking about things I've done. I usually kind of start hyping my clients right away. Um, but I, I've been playing for a living since 72. Since so I started playing with much older guys. I was very lucky um, in the day when you were 16 and there weren't that many bassists. Um, and I was a percussionist. Mm-hmm. I was a timpani player because nobody else got near it in high school. Uh, but I discovered just the way anybody who's listening to this who's a musician, I 
put my hands on a bass. I bought a bass from my friend. I put my hands on it and said, this is me. And I haven't put it down since 1972. That's, I can even tell you the day, May 19th, 1972. Been since then. since then, I have played bass almost every day. And we, besides all our entertainment clients and music business, we represent, those who don't know who are listening, a lot of music instrument companies and almost all of the best bass companies are our clients and it's a really cool gig. So that means the Sadowskis and the Spectres and the Mike Tobiases and all those people, those are our clients. So yeah, I'm really spoiled. So at what, at what point were you playing bass and then learning to uh, learning the law and at what point did you decide I need to do the law full-time? Uh, career paths not to follow mine being chief among them um you know if you're if you're really independent and and determined to do what you want to do you'll get wherever you want to go but um career paths can be daunting you've got to really hang in there i had decided when i was 17 that i want to do uh, be an entertainment attorney music business lawyer I, I never liked the phrase entertainment attorney it always sounds like you've got a dog and pony show mm-hmm. in the back of your office and you know, there's small things with hoops back there. Um, <laughs> so what do you like better? What, what was the term? I like music business attorney. Music business attorney. I, li- I like that. I, okay. I, I think that actually fits it a little bit better, even though we do everything, you know, we're well past just music business. But, you know, entertainment. Is music entertainment to you? I mean, I ask that to the people in the... Uh, and for those who don't know, there are staffs of 40 or 50 people working this right now in this booth with us. <laughs> um, just letting you know, it's a, it's a very busy, busy place. But it's not. I don't think music is entertainment. I mean, it's the essence of who we are. If you're a musician, it's more than entertainment. So I, you know, it's, I'm not trying to be hyper serious, but it's that, it, that's how I look at it. But uh, back to your question, I diverted myself from um, the the career path for me was I, I wanted to be playing for a living, and then I wanted to really be um, a music business lawyer, and I wanted to combine them, and that's what I tried to do. And uh, I was, you know, lucky enough to combine all those things. So I'm still playing. I'm still recording. Um, I'm playing five or six times a month. Uh, I'm recording tomorrow night, and um, I have a great time doing it. And I get to play and beta test clients' gear, and uh, you know, it's it doesn't get any better than that. So it's a lot of a lot of fun. Now, how come the law? What drew you to that? Because we we teach a lot of students here, and not a lot of them surprisingly want to go into good for them. Um, you've really you know i think that's a very interesting question um i think you for me it was that i probably and i'm not joking when i say this i i kind of thought i couldn't do any worse of a job than the attorneys were doing for us and our bands at the time um you know the way we were treated by the attorneys wasn't any different than we were treated by club owners you know it was sign here get lost you know um and i said well that it it can't be that way things have to change so if you're going to make change you have to work within the system so if I wanted to make any real change in things I was learning that were that were um, being you know uh, propagated against all musicians, which are still being done, uh, I'd have to work within the system to change it. And being on the outside and complaining doesn't get it done. Mm-hmm. So at, at what point? I know you mentioned seventy-two was when you took up the bass. At what I, point? I was sixteen. I'm just making sure everyone yeah. says I'm not one hundred and five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? All right, so you're sixteen. So at what point uh, when you went for your undergrad? Was that were you? Were I was you playing, playing in a law at that point, or that yes, was no. no I yes, was, I, but I was playing already. I was playing with bands mm-hmm. on various labels, and then I went to college, and then I played all through college, and I'm still friendly with one of the guitar players in my bands, who was a, d- a dentist in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. and a fine player, um, and played. Uh, and as soon as I was out of school, I started playing full time, and uh, I was lucky enough to get into a couple of really uh, great bands. And started doing studio work when there was no cell phone. So you answered, I think, called Radio Registry. 
And anybody my age would know what that means, that you would literally, the old expression, dropped a dime, means to call people. You, I'm looking now at the youngest person, I think, in the room, would not have any idea what that means, but there's a thing called a payphone. Um, but you actually called when you got a chance, radio registry was like a service, if you will, that provided you with the information about if you got a gig doing a studio project and you there's a thing called a first call. Ever hear these expressions? First call, second call. That's how those expressions came about. I was probably fourth call and uh, I worked my way to fourth call. And that meant that I would be playing in the studio on the fourth floor walk, fourth floor walk up studio with your days before even you carried your gig bags up, banging your case up the steps um, but that's how the early studio business was in New York. And there were, you know, studios proliferated everywhere in New York. They were everywhere. Everybody had a two inch 24 track or even those days, 16 track machine. So some things were, I was AF of M802. I was lucky enough. I still am. I know they have a gold mine of uh, money waiting for me when I retire. Um, tens of dollars, but it is, um, it's a very different world. I mean, that was the scene then was that there were people who were playing bass on records uh, for a living on two to three projects a day. And you had that scene go on for years and then it disappeared and it no longer exists. Everybody can make a record on a laptop. The last record I did, um, which we just finished with, uh, last week, the entire was entirely done on Pro Tools on a laptop, back and forth. I mean, there's no, there's no other methodology for recording that. So, you know, everything's changed. I mean, you went to a studio, and now you take the studio with you. Interesting. And where, where was that? Was that in somebody's apartment and where you recorded just a week ago? It was, I have a studio in my house, but none of my gear was touched. It was just literally the laptop was brought in. I finished a record with um, Rich Chalanda, who was the guitar player in Renaissance, uh, Larry Fast from Peter Gabriel's bands on some of the tracks, and I'm playing uh, the various basses on it. And that was all done literally on a laptop. And, uh, you know, that's nothing new for anybody here who's listening. But um, that just makes a segue in conversation about where technology has changed. Everything changes. The music business, I, I tend to separate the music business into two very different concepts. One is the recording industry, which is, to me, coming in for a final approach on landing <laughs> and to be docked away into the hangar soon. And then there's the music business. These are two very different things. And the music business is uh, doing just fine. You have to adapt to new technologies, but technology and new technologies always change the recording industry. And everything that occurred in the recording industry, every major impact of technology changed what it was the recording industry was about. The first change was the mechanical piano player role revolutionized the recording industry and effectuated change in the 1909 Copyright Act. So all of a sudden you had actual publishing income from mechanical royalties. One of the things that you and I had spoken of briefly before we went on was the myths in the business, how we got started. People have crazy ideas about what things are all about. I mean, and before we had mechanical piano player roles, I'm going to look to you, youngest people here. There was no MTV. There was no radio. It's a world without MTV. Could you believe this? <laughs> um, and this thing in my pocket, which has been going off the entire time, that phone thing, we didn't have one of those. And no, I wasn't around then, so don't don't call in and say that guy's old. Um, it, mechanical piano player roles changed the face of the industry, and we know as the music business, because all we had until then was print, print sheet music, which you all read. But sheet music was how we got the phrases publisher and writer. I'm the writer. I write it. I don't have the money to make a printing press work for me. So you have the printing press, Mr. Shermer. 
So go print that up for me, please, and I'll make a deal with you. Yes, Mr. Shermer says, I'll pay you for your piano forte copies every time I sell them. That's how we started the music business, because it was a publisher and a writer. For those not looking, I'm using my hands. Um, <laughs> I didn't get any makeup when I sat down. Why is that? And, it all um, went to me. Ah, that's, that's right. You got yeah. all that orange and, stuff and on. And hair. I get all the hair. <laughs> no, I didn't get any of that anymore. <laughs> and But thank you for asking. And the change from the, the Copyright Act in 1909 was that all of a sudden we had mechanical royalties. Mechanical royalties changed the nature of everything. Now we had a publisher receiving income every time a sound carrier was sold. And the next thing you know, you've got round Edison records. Well, that sounds normal. The next thing you know, you've got flat vinyl. And flat vinyl, you have various songs on it. And at the time, people maybe didn't write their own music. So you had mechanical income spinning off to the publishers from each of these records. And maybe it was three cents, then four cents. And as it went up over the years, it was five cents. And by the time you get to Elvis, it's real money. And the Elvis catalog... Chapel music, then sold to Warner Chapel, owned by no no relation to me, the Beanstalks. Mm-hmm. Um, that shows you what catalog value was. Elvis was really the first person to see what catalog value was because Sinatra had catalog value, but nowhere near the millions of record sales that Elvis had. And then by the time you get to the '60s and you get to platinum double albums, Cream, Wheels of Fire for those of you who remember, and then you get to Frampton, and you get to the to Boston, and then Michael Jackson. Uh, the first huge change, besides 8-tracks, which none of you know about, cassettes, now gone. Um, I like cassettes. And uh, digital changed everything, but digital came in in 78, 79. I'm just, I'll just keep going. 78, <laughs> 79, and that, people think digital is a relatively new uh, technological development. No, we had DATS. We were, we were mixing to DATS in 79 and 80, and the only thing we didn't have was the methodology to share this for free. That came much, much later, but digital was already in. The labels didn't care a whit about the idea of it being digital or not because they got into the next technological revolution, and that was CDs. When Polygram and Philips uh, beat Sony in the battle for what technological sound carrier we would have, the CD versus the mini disc, um, everybody went to CD. Well, if those of you were uninformed about how record deals work, the first thing that happened to the artist was because it was a new technology, you got half an artist royalty rate. For those unfamiliar with an artist royalty, it's what you receive for performing on a record as a musician. So you got half a rate. You started half because it was a new technology. How long did that last? That lasted a long time until and and we have now we have to then say, give as your kids say, props to lawyers who changed that who said, no, no, you can't do that. But we had <clears throat> packaging deductions. I just did all that terrible non-professional radio stuff like coughing on the air. <laughs> um, we, had, you know, we had packaging deductions for CDs, and we had breakage allowances for CDs, and they didn't break the way um, LPs, did. LPs did. And, of course, we kept that, and we fought over that for years to come. And now you're talking well into the 80s. So you can see the progression of technology changes the recording industry, by the time we get to the idea of, oh, we can transfer this by digital, everybody would like to believe that the theories change. But no, the theories of publishing changed throughout this period, and everything that changed was involving the technology. But you kind of hit the snag of the early 2000s when everybody realized, I don't have to pay for music. And I'm adjunct at NYU. I teach entertainment law there. I'm sorry. I have to throw my, I'll throw that in. It's not William Patterson. I understand. But when I teach my classes, I'll ask, how many of you recently bought music? And I was thrown for a loop this last time, this last class. They said, um, 
Most of them raised their hands. And I, and I quizzed them all one by one. Name it. How much? Because I didn't believe them. Mm-hmm. But they said they did. But that's the first time I've heard that in 12 years, that people mm. are buying music because nobody buys music anymore. And that is, that's the changes because we can get it for free because nobody caught on to the fact of this digital issue from 79 and 80. Right. Okay. Now, for the, for the people who, uh, for the artists who had their royalties cut in half, um, after that was changed, was uh, was a change for them or were they grandfathered in to the... Uh... Oh, no, no. Oh, contraire, my friend. Um, no, 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 I chortle. Um, nobody went backward. You don't go backward right. in, the, in the recording industry, different from the music business. Right. If you want to talk about record companies, no. We, nothing was retroactive. Uh, the only thing that was retroactive in the structure of points, as we call them, artist royalties, that producers go retroactive. They go to record one and go forward. You never did. You go prospective. And record companies always tell you you're unrecouped. It means that you still don't receive artist royalties because you have not recouped all of the income that's required before I open the little spigot at the bottom to allow your right, artist royalties right. to drop through Great, so graciously. Um, <laughs> minus your management's commi- manager's commission, minus your producer royalty, your mixer's royalty, things of that nature. And the small little fees. Yeah. Uh, well, no, that's that's all your deductions off the top. Right, right exactly. Uh, oh, yeah. By the time you're done, if you let's say your average deal is 14% of suggested retail list price, and you can see how the numbers work, it, it would have been 1898 for the days of you know the 90s when everybody thought things were perfect. And I will tell you, I thought the 90s was the death of the recording industry. We could debate that anytime. Um, and I, I'll challenge you, because um, <laughs> I think it died in the 90s. Because of the, pri- because of the gouging the consumer, because... It's part of it. I mean, 1898 for a CD when DVDs were 1398. I mean, I know I'm talking perhaps to an audience that's 21, 19, 22, whatever years uh, age you are, but and you weren't buying records then. But 1898, and here's here's my issue about the 90s. I always challenge everybody. I'll say, give me five great impactful artists from the 90s, and I'll give you one minute. Five from the 90s. The 90s. Five impactful artists from the 90s. Radiohead. Started in the 90s. Have to start in the 90s. What are they, they're, they were 80s, I guess. Then. I'll give uh, you 90s if okay. you want. I'll give it to you. Okay. Uh, Sh- Shania Twain? Really? I'm going to vote on that one. Red Hot Chili Peppers? Maybe? The 80s, come on. Yeah, it's 83, well, yeah, 84. Yeah. Right, but they got big in the 90s. But had ah. seven full years, a full career on right, EMI right, before you even get to Warner Brothers. It's a tough one. Try, uh, Green Day? Uh, 80s. Green Day, so eighties. Well, they're twenty five. Actually, they're at Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So nineteen, they're eighty nine. Then I guess so. before, prior to that. Yeah. Okay. Remember the independent records. All right. So you see, it's we're we're yeah. we're rolling in on a minute. Yeah. And my point is, it doesn't matter. It could be any genre. The nineties were a vapid. Everybody's going to yell at me. Where it was a vapid decade for development of music. We didn't develop artists. Well, let's take it all over. The A and R people who were very popular and very good at what they did and made records got fired. Mm-hmm. Grunge swept out a lot of people, and everybody wanted to reproduce what had come before. We had artists who had no uh, career paths. They had rehearsals. They had put out um, EPs and sold 1,000 copies, but they were from the Northwest, so they got record deals. We had hip-hop artists who no one had ever seen do anything live. No one ever knew if they could perform live. Um, and we didn't create catalog value. We fired executives. We went multinational. We raised the price of everything. And... We didn't think about anything to do with security to the sound recordings. 
It was a lot harder in the day to make a good, solid, what we call mother master of a vinyl record. It clicked and popped and you heard it and it didn't sound good and you knew when it was a, a bootleg. You didn't know that when you bootlegged the CD. Mm-hmm. It was what it was. It was perfect. So we didn't make any arrangements for that. And the labels got caught up in their own greed and caught up with their own uh, growth pattern saying this, this gravy train could never have a caboose. And now they're looking at the caboose because they're sitting in it. You know, it's a very, very different world because the technology changes. But the technology changes have always driven the recording industry. Mm-hmm. And we've always reacted to them. And that's, within the, that's been the engine that's driven the industry in the various directions it's gone. I'm still trying to think of artists from the 90s. I know, and you will be. Now, here, here's one thing I could say. Like, for example, uh, Nirvana, for example, which I would agree probably was 87, 88 when they started. Could you say that they were developing in the 90s as well? I mean, when did they hit Giant? Was it 90... It's 92. It's really, it's really 92. But, I mean, as a challenge round, I'll give it to you. Uh-huh. And I'll even throw you Dave Matthews. Okay. Because then there'd be Pearl Jam, you know, if, if or... or um, Mother, not Mother Love Bone. Uh, Pearl Jam. Green River. Now, uh, Spoon Man. Who, who did Spoon Man? Um, well, they were... Spoon Man. Oh, you mean those? The other yeah, side. Yeah, Soundgarden. Uh, Soundgarden. Sound, so right. Soundgarden, Pearl Jam. But Soundgarden star- is, is way, way before that. All yeah. of those are really bands, and this is the whole point. They developed. We developed artists in the 80s. We put out records. We were, we allowed to have an option. We were okay that the first record maybe didn't sell what we wanted, but we developed them. We did no development in the 90s. Mariah Carey? We we actually got a caller who was uh, oh. pretty upset about what you about your statements. <laughs> he, sa- he said we left out the rap genre almost completely. I, I said so, any genre. No, no, no. We, we did. We did. Oh. So uh, like Biggie Smalls and uh, and Tupac and Diddy? Trap Called Quest and uh, Diddy and all these huge... Uh, Diddy? Diddy's impactful? Someone's going to argue with me. Well, he's culturally, one of the, culturally impactful. In the music industry, he's very impactful. No, no, but, but, artists. Okay, artists. But Biggie Smalls, hands down. Okay. So we got one. There was no. <laughs> there we go. But, uh, so, we got, so that puts us at four. Right, okay. That's we're going to th- we're actually, we have to take a quick break, and then we're going to actually think about this. And if anybody wants to call in and say, you guys are totally wrong, you missed uh, the Stravinsky thing, um, which was the, oh, that was 17. Uh, no, that was Eddie Stravinsky. <laughs> Eddie Stravinsky from uh, P- Perth Amboy. So we will be right back. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more with Ron Beanstock, managing partner Beanstock and Michael. And he's a music business attorney. He is not an entertainment attorney, music business attorney. <laughs> so we'll be back. You're going to hear uh, about our theme song contest on Music Biz 101 more. Get those tweets in at MusicBiz101 WP. Hey, Dr. Steve Marconi, did you know about our Music Biz 101 and More theme song contest? I did and do, but only because I co-host the show. It probably wouldn't be good for you not to know. We're off the topic. Here's the contest that's open to every listener in America. Not Russia. No, I'm mad at them. It's simple. Submit an original tune to be used as the theme song for Music Biz 101 and More. A panel of judges is standing by ready to pick the winner. Any style of music, right? Right. Vocal, instrumental, it can be funny or serious. Our blue ribbon panel is looking for something that stands out. One of those old love songs in your sock drawer won't win. Because that song probably sucks, right, Steve? Funny. All entries are due by November 5th. And the winner will be announced on our show December 10th. What does the winner get? The winning song will be played at the beginning and end of the show and broadcast live on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. here on WPSC. Plus, you'll get verbal credit in each show, and don't forget the podcast. The show is mobile on Stitcher Radio, so if you win, you can have your parents hear the theme song from their phones and then listen to us interview the best of the best of the music and entertainment industry. This is how Justin Bieber got his 
start? No. Is this how Lady Gaga got her start? No. Is this how Paramore got their start? No. But it might be the start of your career. Tweet us for details at MusicBiz101WP or go to our contest page, MusicBiz101WP.com backslash theme song contest. Do it now. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. How do you think of that, Ron? I think that you have a full career yeah. as a Jagger cover artist. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that. My falsetto is pretty. I listen to myself sing and I say, that guy's really good. I say, that guy's almost awesome. Don't you think that, Ron? I. I it couldn't get any better. No, it can't. It's, it's such an evocative presentation. Yeah, it is. And the song we're listening to is Emotional Rescue by Los Rolling Stones. And I purposely chose this song to be played because as the music business attorney, I know you're not a manager, but as the attorney, I'm sure you... I have you, managed. You have managed, okay. Yeah. But in your roles, you have, especially from, from that perspective, you have been come to the emotional rescue, I'm sure, of many artists who are being... Um, being hurt by whether it's a record company or by a manager or somebody. Um, can you explain about some of the things that you have, you've done to help artists who have been in bad situations? Well, hold on. Before you answer this question, we, we, <laughs> we received a text from uh, Matthew Leon and um, he was he was upset as well. He, he said Nine Inch Nails, Nirvana, I think we mentioned, uh, Tupac, Pearl Jam, and Eminem, duh. He wrote duh. So, I mean... I would prefer not to have anybody die to become impactful <laughs> that's I'm, most of them most of them are dead wow yeah. right except yeah. Eminem yeah. except Eminem doing the emotional rescue issue it's an interesting point um, I may look at things very differently than others um, and, and so my perspective would be I tend to look at things this way I organize the artists um, many times artists have been represented by somebody else they come to you for whatever purpose how they end up there but my gig as people like to say is to organize there are four basic income streams in the music business. There's live income, there's merchandise income, there's income from publishing, there's income from sound recordings or masters. If it's not fitting into one of those four categories, I don't know what you're doing in the biz. So you have to organize. And most people don't have fundamental understandings, uh, a fundamental understanding of any of the four basic income streams. And if they do, they've become very reliant on live and merch. They don't understand publishing, publishing being the Byzantine dark corner nobody wants to look at. And, of course, artist royalties, records, sound exchange, all the things to spin off from, from masters is, is more understood because it's relatively simpler in terms of the income streams because generally you're just told you're unrecouped. Um, but the world of licensing masters you own and how you collect income and that the fact that if you're a songwriter, you're also a publisher is a daunting concept to most people. The concepts that are also daunting are there's a copyright in the sound recording and there's a copyright in the composition embodied on the sound recording is daunting to most people. Um, so where you start with this quote of emotional rescue issue is you try to organize. Um, and every band is effectively a dysfunctional family. I mean, just had two of these meetings today, they're dysfunctional families, people, and inherently so, because you're not going to agree on everything creatively. You're not going to agree on everything even personally. You travel together sometimes. I was lucky enough to, to fly many for many of my tours um, where you had less time next to people on a daily, minute-to-minute basis rather than being in a van for 18 hours at a time. That, that's a very, very tough life. 
uh, and you are going to eventually have an issue. Tour buses, there's not enough room to get out of anyone's way in a tour bus. It's not. You're, if you're driving for 18, 20 hours, it's tough. And there are, it gives people time to think. It gives people time to think to say things like, that guy makes more money than I do. Well, that guy writes the songs. So how do you even that out? Well, that's my job. My job is to bring everybody together, organize the income streams, form the entity, create the intra-band language amongst the entity. Where is our trademark for the name going to fit in as an asset? So we don't have two rats or 12 Beach Boys or five Pink Floyds, all that stuff that, that always makes the press but can be easily avoided. Um, and I've been doing that since I started doing this in 87, is to organize, create the fundamental uh, structure so we can have people exit if they need to or enter as they need to and things don't go awry. Now, in, in that particular case, when you're working with a band and you're working with the name, for example, and besides trademarking the name, let's say it's four, four guys in a band. How do you structure it so that if Roger Waters leaves, he can't take the name with him? It's, you know, it's I, an asset. It's an uh, asset of... Who owns the asset? The entity owns the asset. So what if... If one guy leaves, but he says he, how do you structure it so that it's clear? Okay, if you you might be the lead singer and you might leave, but you are not the band. Well, that's so that's, effect, you, that's effectively it. I mean, is that you are structuring the entity? It's uh, make a terrible analogy. It's like a house. You're all walking in, right? And this is the blueprint for the house, and this is how we're going to build it. And the the structure. The asset is a, the trademark is an asset owned by the company. You may be, a, if it's an LLC, you may be a member of the LLC, or if it's an S corp, you're a, you're a shareholder. But effectively, what's going to happen is is that that entity that keeps that name, and you may come and go, but the 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 asset stays with the company, and that's the agreement we have. So if everybody goes, and the last person to there was the backing keyboard player, and everybody is gone. And for whatever reason, they leave, and everybody's decided to move on to their own. He's the last shareholder. If he's a shareholder, it's his or hers or theirs, whoever is left over. But that's what keeps the entity alive. And I like bands to be – and I every – by the way, anybody who's saying that we're leaving out hip-hop – Everybody's a band to me. I'm sorry. They're all bands. I still call things LPs. That, I'm sorry. A, that's the 70s you. Yeah, I can't <laughs> help it. Everything's a band. Everybody's yeah. all right. So I'll call them all artists. I don't care. But but the band is always going to be the sum of its parts. I try to keep that together. That's the other emotional rescue. I put bands back together many many times that were it was Humpty Dumpty. There was no chance that we put them back together. And I do have the black couch in my office <laughs> that is. Had a lot of uh, uh, well-known derrieres on it, and we would resolve these things. Now we do it more in conference rooms. But the point is, is to keep the entity going, even when people the sum of the parts. There's a special thing, even when people say this guy's a better drummer, this guy's a better. There's a special thing that each band, yes, of any genre, has together. So it's the sum of the parts. I fight to keep that the way it is, and so I'll create methodologies to have income spread around amongst people so that they can share, maybe not, it's not always going to be equal, but the methodologies for them to share enough with each other um, so they're all comfortable on that 18-hour ride when they look at each other and just say, how come that guy makes more than I do? So maybe you don't make exactly what that guy does, but you're happy. And you know what? You should be happy that that guy writes hits. And that's something we always have to talk about, but nobody ever wants to talk about. Some bands, you know, start out in the very beginning and say, we'll split everything equal. You two, you know, everything's equal. Good. That probably keeps that band together. Interesting. Okay. Sam is going to start reading some tweets, and we have 
16 minutes left. Challenge round. I Let's know, go. A thousand questions. Read. Uh, before we, we have oh. Foo Fighters too, who started in the 90s. Somebody texted that in. Impactful? Foo Fighters? Yeah, I think Foo Fighters are pretty impactful. Mm. I think Dave Grohl as a, as a industry <laughs> juggernaut is impactful, but I don't know if you're going to say I want to be the be sounding like the Foo Fighters. I well, at know. this point, any answer is the right answer. I'll so, take them all. So. <laughs> right, we'll, pass, we'll pass five. Right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> all right, we got a tweet from Reiko Takahashi. A question for Ronald Beanstalk. What is the number one reason why a musician should have a lawyer? Um, I think that it is almost impossible to, to gain the knowledge in the marketplace we're in. I think most people, if they're lucky enough to go to William Patterson, get an education in music and music business. It's a rarity. It's, it's uh, a guiding light out there because most of the schools I speak to, um, when I'm speaking at a speaking engagement at a music uh, school, it is generally not going to be taught by anybody current or taught in a fashion that some that somebody could actually learn how to make a living. So my point is, if you're serious about making music your career, seek out a professional, learn the income streams, understand how to organize your career. So if it's right away, it's right away. But I'd rather ha- that be done as a preparatory matter rather than finding out something went wrong then seeing the attorney. We got a tweet from Jess. As a manager, what should definitely be included when writing up a band contract? Well, number one, you shouldn't write it up. You should have your attorney do it. Don't take something off the web. Spend the money to have it done correctly. What's the thing in it? Management contracts are very personal, and those negotiations are literally the most derisive and divisive moments in my business because managers take everything rather personally because they're usually going to say, I'm going to put my heart and soul into this artist. So back away, number one. Make it less personal. What's your commissionable base? Is it 15? Is it 20? What's your term length? How long is it going to be? You're going to want to talk about post, post-term post issues in terms of you stepping out at some point. Is there a key person clause in it? All these things are going to be the things you need to look at with management. Are you going to be worldwide? Uh, things of that nature. I mean, what's the, what's the scope? All the issues are... There are standards. There's no standard agreement, but there are standards, and they should be your standards. And you can guide yourself accordingly by making decisions to do things slightly differently if you'd like, but have that done by a professional and make sure it says what you want. And please don't use the excuse when the agreement goes out to the artist saying, oh, my lawyer drafted it up. I have no idea what it says. Be very familiar with its contents and be able to explain it to your artist. A legal Zoom is not the way to go. Oh, no. Okay. No, 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 not. No. Okay. He said emphatically. (laughs) We got another tweet from Bianca. When should you hire an entertainment lawyer? Pretty much the way we had heard from, I think it was Ryoko before, is that as a preparatory matter, let's learn now. Let's not make mistakes. Uh, correcting of mistakes is what I prefer not to do. I would prefer to be in the beginning, organize everybody up, get everything together. Let's get our entity together, learn what our taxes are all about. Did I say that? Taxes. Yeah, he said taxes. Make sure that our income... Here's a great example. Band goes plays, plays a gig. There's a band on this campus right now. It's going to go play a gig and get a check, and the check's going to be written out to somebody's social security number. You don't want that. It means you got a 1099, the guys in your band. You don't want to do that. Guys, gals, they, it, band, rap, hip-hop, all genres, thank you. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's You want to have an entity. You want to have a structure. You want to have a federal ID number. These are. It's a business. Treat it like a business. It's your profession. Treat it like your profession. We got a tweet from Bobby Mahoney. In the music industry today, what is the most preventable way artists are getting screwed? Okay, Bobby. Um, Bobby, are you familiar with the 360 deal? Hmm. All right. So let me put it to you this way. Um, 
I don't have that much time to do it in great detail, but here's the story. If you thought record deals were, were slightly difficult to analyze because you made here, – here's a record deal in its, in its essence, and I'm going to be – sorry to be dark, but here, here it is. You sign an agreement that says you're an exclusive recording artist for a company, and this is the way things were. And no matter how many records you sell, no matter how much money you make them, you're never getting the copyrights back to your performances on these sound recordings. Just ask Led Zeppelin. So no matter how successful you are with them, you still don't have control over your recorded product. All right. Well, that's one negative. Now let's spread that across all the things I described before. Live income, record companies want to participate in now. Merchandise income, they want to participate in and they want to be your publisher. So how do you avoid that? a carefully, carefully negotiated, scrutinized deal that you should be willing to say no to. How do you, that, that's the point, as you were talking, I'm thinking, you have an artist who's finally, after however long, you know, finally getting, somebody's interested, they like me, mm-hmm. you know, that you're, they're going to ask me to go to prom with them, you know, but he might be the bad boy and I know he's going to treat me badly, but I so want to go to the prom, you know. How do you condition them to say, you should maybe say no to this? How, how do you, back to that emotional rescue thing, because they're going to want to sign in the worst yeah. way, because it's getting back at the gym teacher who told them they would never make it, mm-hmm. the English teacher who said that they weren't too bright. Who's this for? You know, I used to ask bands that would be pr- chasing bad record deals, and I'd say, who's this for? Is this for your parents? Is this for you? You've just sold 20,000 records on your, old at, on your own at $10 average per unit. It's $200,000 gross. Do you want to get an advance and have it be recouped and earn it back on royalty structure? Let's think about this. Let's look at this in a smart way. Do you need this? That brass ring concept still is in people's minds. I deal with it all day. And you're right. It is, it's that comeuppance. They got it. They made it. You know, here I am. I can prove everybody wrong because I'm on a major label. Except what's your chances and your odds of making it more successful with that major label? Not any more heightened than anyone else. We got a tweet from Cole. What is the what is one of the most important things you teach about entertainment laws? Uh, okay, it, Cole. Interesting question. Um, I think I try to emphasize the concepts of broad based approach to the industry. That it's broad based. That it's a cumulative series of events that makes your career not one big break. I think that is one of the major issues I have with people who show up at my office who have just won some contest and with their parents, grandparents, and everybody who's invested in their career. This is the big break. And I don't think there is such a thing as one big break. You have great gigs. You get noticed. Things accumulate. You write great songs over time. Your performances get better. So I think I try to teach outside of legal issues. I try to teach the practicality and pragmatism of saying that it's not about one thing. It's everything you do. And if I had to go by one, three tip way to approach it, great songs recorded in an evocative fashion in the best way you can afford to record them is the way to go. Here's a question from Alexa. Do you advise independent artists to hire entertainment lawyers or only big name acts? What if they can't afford that? What do you suggest? Alexa, how do you know you can't afford it? That's my first question. How do you know that? So is that a preconceived notion you got? Who'd you call? The most important thing is to find somebody you have a relationship with that you trust. And, you know, you invest in your career. You invest it into your education. You invest in your career. If you don't have trust with somebody, that goes for anybody you have a relationship with in the music business, your lawyer, your manager, your business manager. If you don't have that trust, that's not the person for you. But 
clearly not everybody can pay top dollar for something. That doesn't mean you're not going to find somebody who is really qualified to help you and work with you. Most people in the music business will understand that as you walk in the door, you're hoping for a long relationship. I'm looking for a 30-year relationship with my artists. I've been with some people since the day I started, or even before, quite frankly, and I still we still represent them, and I still work with them. It has to be a trust basis, but uh, you've got to you've got to really ask the questions: What can you afford? And ask the person you're speaking to: Can they work it out with you? Can you do some terms with them? Figure it out. I'm sure someone will come to your aid. All right, you got a question from the man, Keen Donson. The man. Ron. <laughs> He's the man. By the way, just Sam Lowry is our man who is reading all these questions. And this the man, Keen Donson, uh, has texted like four questions, tweeted like four questions to us. So here's number four. By the way. Thanks Ron, for listening. What's an average day at the office? Incredibly intense. It starts usually with uh, me not even getting to the office. I'm usually looking at emails before I get there. And um, sometimes it's phone calls in the cart. Hands-free. Thank you. Um, and the second I walk in the door, there's usually the phone is ringing. I usually have appointments during the day. I do these things called initial consults where I meet with new artists, all genres, thank you. They're about two <laughs> hours. I do them as a flat fee. I organize the artists. Usually they're about to put out a record. I say, look, are you who are you affiliated with? Ask at BMRCSEC. I get a blank look. I say, okay, you're a writer and a publisher. Let's talk about your affiliations. Is there an entity? No. Do you own the trademark? No. So these are the things that we need to organize early. That's kind of my day, the negotiation process. Um, there's, there's the drafting of agreements. There's working people with your office to make sure the agreements say what they're supposed to say. All of these things are the daily thing. The phones never stop. The emails never stop. It, it, it can be very, very intense. I don't usually leave the office till around 7, 30, 8 o'clock. What time did you say you I get, show up? I get in at 10. 10, okay. 10 o'clock, sometimes 9.30, depending if I'm riding my bike to work. Right, here's a question from Aaron. As an entertainment lawyer, do you find any similarities between representing actors, directors, writers, and musicians, or do you find representing musicians is a more complex process? It's more complex because they're more income streams. An actor hired for a film, any one of our clients that's, act, that's in a film, we get paid. Film tanks, meh, sorry. Music business, record tanks, everything's recoupable. Now what? It's a very different conceptual business, and you have income streams because you have multiple pieces of intellectual property. You have copyrights in a sound recording, copyrights in the composition, and you have a trademark. Here's a question from Mel. How do verbal contracts work? How are they legally binding? Well, let's try not to have them, number one. (laughs) I love that question. I get it all the time. You know, Um, Verbal agreements are enforceable in New Jersey and New York, but let's not go into that direction because usually we have to have course of conduct and all kinds of legal analysis. Let's just say try not to have that handshake deal without some parameters and try to have a handshake deal and then follow it up by 700 emails saying, you're the man, you're the guy, you're the gal, you're my favorite person, let's let's work together for the next five years because you just made a five-year deal. Let's not do that. Let's think about this on a professional level and let's do things right from the beginning. Which brings me to the other side because I, I know some students who have created their own contracts not with not going to a, a biz, music business lawyer or anything like that they've kind of made their own it's the sound of my head now hitting the microphone <laughs> exactly are those enforceable because they're, they're saying it's in writing you know some of the worst things i have seen uh and and this is a, this is not an exaggeration in the last four years i have begun to see such awful work 
terrible contracts, uh, incomprehensible language, uh, paragraphs that relate to nothing that have been included because somebody thought it sounded legal, people who actually use things like party of the first part and party of the second part, like a Marx Brothers skit. Uh, it's a, <laughs> not a band, Marx Brothers. Um, that that Can it be enforceable? If you've got nothing else, enforceable means we're probably litigating over this. I'd prefer not to do that. I'd prefer to have agreements that are clean, concise, drafted properly, that doesn't, make, that doesn't mean that they're condensed, complex, overly expensive, or overly long. They could be done, and they could be done by the right people to get you where you need to go. Because we're going to look back at this agreement if something goes wrong. And when somebody, because I've been through this before, when somebody meets with you in your, in your case, you usually will do a free consultation and just find out what's, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you'll do, will you do any sort of consultation to find out? Well, people call all day and I'll right. talk to them on the phone. Okay. I, but I, I don't, I'm not a personal injury lawyer who's going to come have you stop in my office mm-hmm. for five minutes and let me see how bad your injury is. When I'm working, I'm working. If someone has an agreement they want me to see... We're going to mark it up. We're going to tell them what's wrong with it, and we have to explain the underlying principles to it. So when I'm working, I'm working. But I work those things out fiscally with all with our with clients all the time. But the free consultation thing that's 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 you know schmelz 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 you know Chang and schmelz you know who say <laughs> hey if you thought about falling have you have do you want to be hurt you know come and call us um, that's not how we are we're working for, if you call me and anybody can call me if anybody calls me and I get those calls all day. I'll figure out what we need to do next, and then we'll get you into the office. And sometimes I'll tell people, you know what, just don't do that. Okay. So, uh, so for example, an example, and this is something that, that I know. Um, I will. Let's say it's me. It's not me, but it's me. And I'm calling you up and saying, I, um, I think I did a work for hire agreement with somebody where he wrote the lyri- he wrote the lyrics. I did the music. I bought bought it from him. I gave him three hundred dollars. And I made it so I own the song now. And I just want to make sure that he can't come, you know, if it becomes a number one hit, he can't come and he can't sue me for half a billion dollars. Well, he's not going to get you a half a billion dollars because you're not going to make a half a billion <laughs> um, or, or 250. So the question would be, is it, is it an enforceable agreement? I need to see it. I need to know the circumstances. It's not as simple as somebody just sending it to you. I'll tell you where the easy parts are. Someone says, is this company legit? And I'll just tell them, I'll write back, scam. Because they're everywhere. As the recording industry comes in for this final approach, the hustlers are getting much closer to the surface. They're not the bottom feeders anymore. And there are a million hustles out there that people need to be aware of. So if someone calls me and says, do you know who these people are? And they sent me this contract. I'll say, just don't sign that. It's not worth it. Walk away, even though they think it's the brass ring. So, yeah, I'll do that. And I'll gladly tell people that on the phone. Okay. Uh, We have a question for Sam, actually. We lost the question. It's on. No, uh, we have it. We have it. Read it's, the question. All right. It's from uh, Hillary D. And uh, the question is, wow. if, if, you, <laughs> if you could work for any musician, artist, or band right now, who would it be and why? Oh, Hillary D. Oh, I'd probably have to say this girl named uh, Chrissy Costanza. She's this indie type girl who's kind of got like this Paramore type sound. She's done a lot of covers of some really good songs. I really like them. I'd like to see her become more popular and see what we can do with that. Is this a was this a staged question and that the girl no, who's in the but band? I have a hunch who Hillary D is. Really? Yeah. Okay. But that cover thing that really bothers me. Are we paying mechanical royalties out to publishers <laughs> and we're doing covers? What's her own material sound like? Her own material has that similar type sound, like a type of Paramore type sound. That's what you're going to be supporting. That's mm-hmm. what's going to support you. That's what's going to support her. So Listen. that's Whoa. the key, that's the key yeah. question. What is that material all about? That's the most important thing you could ask yourself. Well, there are many things that we, uh, 
I wish we could keep asking you questions. We actually, we have a ton more tweets. Um, I have a whole sheet of thing. I have two pieces of paper here of questions that we never got to ask because our time is running low. What we're going to do is uh, we're going to write about this. Uh, it'll be up on our website, musicbiz101wp.com, and you'll get to hear this back in about a week and a half. Um, it'll be up on stitcher.com. Next week, we have Grammy Award-winning music producer Rob Fusari. This has been a great hour on Music Biz 101 and more on WP Brave New Radio 88.7 with Ronald Beanstalk, man partner of Beanstalk and Michael. So thank you, Ronald. Thank you, thank thank you, you. so much. Philip Gorokovsky, thank you so much for being our producer today. Thank you. Sam Lowry, thank you much uh, for being a student and uh, paying your tuition. We need the money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very good. And it's been great. So thank you very much. Until next week on Music Biz 101 and more, I say to you, ah!